Are you listening to this on Spotify right now? You should be. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite artists and podcasts in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. Premium Spotify users can download episodes to listen to offline, so wherever you are, you can hear me. It'll be like we're on that vacation in the mountains together. And of course, you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends on Instagram. If you haven't done so already, be sure to download the Spotify app and search for Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. Or you can browse to find new podcasts in the tab marked Your Library. Oh, and make sure to follow me so you never miss an episode of Be Reasonable. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Uh, today, I am joined by Noah Rothman. Noah Rothman is associate editor of Commentary. Uh, Noah, hi. How you doing? Thank I'm you for having me. Thank you for coming. I'm uh, honored by your presence. Um, tell me a little bit about Commentary, and then we can get into it. Uh, sure. The uh, commentary is a, an opinion journal. It has been in constant publication since 1945. Its um, focus is mainly on um, Jewish issues, uh, but it also does a lot of uh, political and uh, philosophical commentary, a variety of authors who have come through that institution. Uh, I'm privileged to be a part of its intellectual history. Um, it is primarily known, I think, uh, in... Uh, recent decades as the home of um, neoconservative thought, mm -hmm. um, a very misunderstood philosophy, which is a really fascinating uh, philosophy. It's a, the story of uh, how New York intellectuals, a group of very interesting um, lettered scholars, many of most of whom were far left of center socialist in, uh, in orientation, gradually migrated into a more right-leaning philosophy it uh, espouses and you know it doesn't have an editorial line but many of its authors espouse an extroverted foreign policy and a uh, slightly more interventionist approach to uh, domestic politics than a lot of conservatives so uh, more conservative rigid idea ideological libertarian thinkers so it occupies an interesting intellectual niche and uh, I think I'm uh, I'm privileged to be a part of it was there a key moment where uh, that segment of left-leaning people moved rightward? Was was there a uh, a catalyst for that, or did, was it just kind of a gradual progression? I mean, it was there were catalysts, um, but it was generally a gradual um, gradual migration of ideological thought as this uh, group of people who called themselves the New York intellectuals, which sounds you know really rather haughty, but it was nevertheless <laughs> what they described themselves as. Um, you know, founded intellectual journals, uh, you know, your Irving Crystals, and uh, and, and uh, you know a, a variety of the sun. They, they found a commentary, Dissent Magazine, Partisan Review. Uh, it was the age of the intellectual journal. 
Um, there's actually a really great PBS documentary on the, all these people. Uh, Norman Podhoritz, who's the father of uh, my boss, John Podhoritz. Um, the documentary on PBS is called Arguing the World, and uh, it's really uh, an, an enlightening look at how this uh, intellectual journey uh, occurred and how profound the impact uh, that these people have had on um, the uh, the evolution of American politics and uh, and how policymakers read them and subscribed to their ideas, argued with their ideas. It's a really fascinating, fascinating occupation. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm once again, gonna happy to be a part of it. Yeah, cool. So, okay, so one of my goals with this podcast is to bring Hollywood a different point of view um, because I think that we are very uh, homogenous in our political culture here. And I think it's kind of enforced from the top down. I mean, we're in a city that is so much reliant on image and part of that image that people have now begun to cultivate is this, you know, political awareness image. Actually, I shouldn't say begun. It's been going on forever, but, um, that part of it in particular really disturbs me because I think that it has a, um, like a, 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 a a silencing effect on any ideas that are outside of that. So can you tell me why you're not scary? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, mean, I cannot. I feel like the Hollywood idea of conservatives is that they're, they're dangerous, reactionary, racist, anti-gay, um, anti-healthcare, anti-helping groups. Um, and so maybe you could just speak to that. Like, where do you sit? When when those criticisms are raised, well, I mean, I suppose if you subscribe to caricatures, yeah, exactly, then then there's generally little rationalization with that line of thinking because it's not so much a line of thinking as it is a comfort blanket. Mm -hmm. It is designed to persuade you to rationalize your way out of engaging with ideas. Um, and if that's your bag, I mean, more power to you. But uh, it doesn't strike me as a particularly illuminating philosophy. In fact, it's one that is uh, antithetical to the uh, the kind of dialogue and, uh, and just, uh, you know, basic openness to the human experience that I think is necessary to be a well-rounded person. So, I mean, it's, it's a philosophy, but it's not one that I think any rational person would subscribe to who believes in having a uh, having their ideas and their precepts challenged? Mm -hmm. I mean, having being <clears throat> being challenged is how you become a, a better arguer, a smarter person. Uh, I spent most of my career um, moving up the chain in institutions where I was the lone conservative dissenting voice, um, and I think that uh, got me a little bit more attention. In part because I just wasn't, you know, one of many voices saying the very same thing that the last guy had said with just a little bit more emotion behind it. Um, but somebody who was saying something a little more uh, unorthodox, heterodox, and uh, made made for a stronger argument on my part. In part because I knew I was addressing a skeptical audience, uh, and that's you know that's something that I'm sure you're very familiar with. That you have to have a much sharper argument if you're approaching an audience that is predisposed to disagree with you. Yeah, I think you also have to have a uh, a pretty high degree of self-confidence in those situations and also some patience because uh, the, char humility. the character, the character attacks are unbelievable. Um, well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't suggest that I, I, I've been in any way victimized by individuals, by individuals who are, who have a different point of view and who are uh, in, interested in engaging with you in a critical fashion. Um, that's, 
that's the Academy, or it was the Academy. Um, mm-hmm. That is the role that I occupy on MSNBC. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I think is a valuable um, contribution to uh, society and to thought. And, um, I mean, it, it used to be the case that in the, in the age before social media, there was much less currency in uh, posturing, in, in, in special pleading, and emotional rationales, uh, as opposed to creating, crafting an argument, advancing an argument, and having that argument um, tested and reviewed. Uh, now, the argument isn't so much the thought that is expressed, but the way the thought is expressed. And that is an anti-intellectual uh, trend in mm-hmm. uh, American political discourse. And but it is one that is nevertheless much more prevalent, I think, now as the result of these um, the rise of these platforms, which are like Twitter, like Facebook, sure. which uh, privilege arguments that are made in the shortest period of time and with the most tangible emotional affect behind them. Right, and I think that one of the ways that uh, kind of plays out especially online, is that eventually it seems like the argument always boils down to finding a victim class that you're able to say, if you don't agree with me, then you hate these people. And I think that that's what we find in um, in the whole discussion around coronavirus and the lockdowns, which is primarily what I want to talk to you about, because um, I think that you... First of all, you guys on the podcast every day, and for those of you who are just hearing about Noah for the first time, um, commentary has been doing a podcast five days a week to just talk about the issues of the day, and it is a uh, a lone bastion of sanity right now. Thank um, you very much. Oh, I've it's keeping me level because I'm hard pressed to find anybody who is saying the things that you're saying. And the things that I'm saying, and there's maybe a few other people out there who are like, wait, this is not being, this conversation is not being held in the proper context. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the choices before us when it comes to public policy are really easy to demagogue. Um, All of them. Uh, We face no good options here, only less bad options. Uh, And that is difficult for people who um, don't internalize trade-offs and don't deal with trade-offs very well uh, to to accept and to manage. you know, it's super easy for you to say, how dare you uh, subject, uh, you know, the aged and the elderly and infirmed to the prospect of a, of a terrifying death just so that you can get a haircut. How dare you, uh, re- you know, relegate millions of people to precarity and destitution all so that you can protect people who are on the farthest upper end of actuarial tables. Right. Um, these are arguments that people think are compelling, not because they are arguments, but because they are special pleading. Their appeals to emotion and appeals to emotion are extremely powerful, Um, but they are not intellectual exercises. They're the, the ritual slaughtering of straw men. Isn't this also one of the particular dangers right now of having a polarized culture? Because it actually enables laziness in terms of the conversation. You basically get to stake out one far side position and then demonize everyone who doesn't share it. And that seems like in a, in a time this crucial, that seems an unbelievably, uh, just wrought choice of, of how to lead this conversation. Yeah. And I mean, there's no, there's no great answer to, to that. 
Uh, it is, it's like I said earlier, I think it's something of a comfort blanket. I mean, we've been cast out right. into a truly unprecedented condition. Virtually everyone alive today has not known the conditions that we're in right now. And um, it can be very self-soothing to engage in the kind of behaviors we did in the before time, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, identity politics and um, the kind of uh, caricaturing of your political adversaries. Uh, that's, that's the sort of behavior that we did when things were normal. And so it feels normal, even though nothing is normal. So where do you sit on um, the lockdowns right now? Because when I, you know, the first couple of weeks, I looked at this like, okay, this is what we're going to try. I'm happy to participate. I hope it works. But we were, we were sold that idea um, with the understanding that this was going to be a couple week thing to preserve the, the functionality of our healthcare system. And that's quickly gone by the wayside. And right now I feel like we're in a position where we have been cowed into this belief where if, where, where we have the opportunity to just stop death. Yeah. I mean, again, like there are, n- the acceptance of the fact that everything's bad and is not going to get better anytime soon is sort yeah. of a cathartic uh, realization. Um, the, as you say, the original rationale for shutting everything down insofar as it was possible, um, which really only amounts to about a third of economic activity, but is nevertheless um, particularly prevalent in people in occupations like yours and mine who Mm -hmm. have the luxury and freedom of weathering the storm from behind a desk in your home. Um, Many do not. Most do not. Uh, Nevertheless, that was the idea, was to, the quote, flatten the curve, was to crush this great big parabolic arc that was going to result in a civilization threatening nightmare uh, and elongate it and prolong this condition so that instead of having 100,000 new cases a day you had 20,000 new Mm -hmm. cases a day and somewhere along the line but what our policymakers declined to do at the state level and the federal level was to acclimate us to what the consequences of that condition would be which would be to relegate us to a, a condition in which we had to live with this thing for a very long time um they they didn't really grapple with that conclusion it is now upon us and we are struggling to accept the reality of success. We have been successful in in flattening the curve. We have not been successful and will not be successful in crushing it, which seems to be the new policy rationale. And if you were to think for a few minutes uh, through the contradictions associated with um, what people appear to be advocating now, which is a perpetual shutdown of economic activity until the net caseload uh, per day reaches zero, um, you're talking about a, a society-wide decimation. Um, the notion that we can spin up society after three or four months of this suggests that there will be a society left to spin up. Um, and it is particularly pernicious in places like my working-class neighborhood of New Jersey, where um, my neighbors are service industry professionals. Um, you know, unemployment runs out after a while, and yeah. your customer base simply has disappeared. You know, there is no livelihood for you to return to after a particular period of time and they're getting rather anxious and i don't suspect that they will stand for ambiguity 
and from public policymakers that this will end at a date uncertain when conditions that are uncertain as well have arrived. We will recognize it when it comes. That's simply unsatisfactory. And, for, and it's not just unsatisfactory for individuals. It's unsatisfactory for a society. It's a very complex, interwoven uh, series of interactions and negotiations and institutions all interacting with each other in ways that are impossible for anyone to get their hands around because there are just billions and billions of daily interactions that make up what we call the economy. And if you were to shut down a significant portion of them, like any web, any scaffolding, it will begin to buckle. Let me ask you this because, you know, one of the arguments – that conservatives will make against an expansion of the welfare state or even the welfare state as a concept is that people is that it first of all it incentivizes the wrong things and that also people generally don't want to be subject to waiting for government checks now your neighbors are in that situation and you mentioned that the unemployment is going to run out but how many of them want to be on unemployment in the first place I mean, surely none, but right. that that's that's a hardship that they're willing to bear for, for a, time. a very very significant for a very unprecedented set of conditions, and sure. I think that's probably the prevalent sentiment in the country right now. When you see all these polls that suggest that um, you know sixty seventy percent of the public supports lockdowns in perpetuity until some unforeseen scientific advance delivers us from this condition, um, that's a bit of magical thinking, but at least it's it's a demonstration of resolve. Um, but people make the mistake of thinking that this is some sort of like an up or down referendum, like it's an election, Mm -hmm. as though that 70% constitutes a winning majority and you can therefore disregard that other 30% because they're just a rump. hate to tell you, but the 30% gets a vote in this thing. And and when you're talking about 30% of American adults, you're talking about 100 million people. Yes. Millions and mil- tens of millions of people for whom these conditions are intolerable. And they will not simply sit around and wait to die. They will preserve and protect as much of their way of life as possible. They will secure as much economic activity as is available to them. They will provide for their families. And when these conditions become so intolerable that the kind of business, small businesses, large businesses, 5013s, institutions that simply will not survive in the next six, eight weeks – begin to see the the end coming, uh-huh. uh, I suspect you will see a kind of, um, you're already beginning to see it sub rosa, but I suspect you will begin to see it much more visibly, uh, a kind of frustration with these conditions that will force them to end, probably before health experts would prefer them to end. Right. But nevertheless, um, we're coming up against uh, conditions that will be such a hardship, an unendurable hardship, that it will be incumbent on blue state governors primarily, who are the the leading edge of this, the Northeast in particular, um, to begin to relent in their maximalist position on this. Um, So I was... There was a uh, a Politico and Morning Consult poll out a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure it's been updated right now. I haven't seen new numbers. But at that point, it was something like 60 to 70, maybe 75 percent of people uh, responded that they had not only not lost their own jobs and not been financially affected by it. They didn't even know anyone who had at that point. And so when I look at when I look at a number that says around 60 or 70 percent of people are totally still comfortable with the lockdowns, I wonder how much overlap there is there and how much of that extra 30 to 35 percent would mirror the 30 and 35 percent of people who really do want to get back to real life. Well, I, I'm not sure about 
that's just one poll, so I'll take it at face value. I've seen others sure, that sure, sure. suggest that people, a, a majority, I think, had seen at least some income um, mm-hmm. suffer or other knew others that suffer. But anyway, and I'm sure that poll, number is going to keep going up. Yeah, and taking and and what it's going to do is work its way up the chain. Now, exactly. this quite unlike 2009, which was an economic catastrophe that began at the top end of the income spectrum mm-hmm. and worked its way down. This one starts at the bottom and works its way up. And the service industry professionals who were the first people to get hit real hard by this are not the the type that are so visible to American policymakers that they will af- affect an immediate uh, catastrophic. Uh, threat to their political position because and to put this in the most callous terms possible um, what political officials respond to are threats to their political position um, and that would require individuals of means uh, being the hardest hit as as nakedly Machiavellian as you can make this thing. That's the calculus as I see it. And policymakers, to the extent that they're willing to endure these conditions for the sake of public health, which, by the way, is ambiguous. The mm-hmm. data that we have is very contradictory and very patchwork, a lot of patchy data that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. For example, as a digression, in yesterday's briefing from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, he related that the data that they have now apparently suggests that a full two-thirds of new cases, which are lower, but nevertheless a lot, um, are people who were sheltering in place at home, who are not, not essential workers, mm-hmm. who are not out, who are not traveling, who are not using the subways, who do not have a lot of contact with people. Now, this is all self-reported, so who knows what they're saying and what they're doing and the distinctions between them. Nevertheless, if that is the reality that we're facing in New York, um, which is still the, the, the primary driver of uh, new infections, then where are we going with this and for how long? Yeah. And again, I suggest that once we begin to see people who are not uh, waiters and waitresses and mechanics and the people for whom uh, who make society work, but nevertheless do not have a lot of political clout, once this pressure begins to migrate up the economic ladder to people who are responsible for maintaining a donor base, for example, then we'll begin to see attitudes shift rather quickly. Um, so you just wrote a piece about narrative-based journalism, and I-, I wonder if you can just take a minute and explain kind of the thesis of that, and then let's get into a little bit of that. Yeah, sure. The um, uh, the piece was brought about by the awarding of the uh, Pulitzer Prize in commentary to Hannah Nicole Jones for her work for the uh, 1619 Project. And her essay was um, probably one of the best in that symposium, in part because it suffered from far less revisionist history than many of the other um, items in that portfolio did, Um, which is not to say it was free of it. The New York Times had to correct one of the assertions that she made. But nevertheless, it was was a hopeful piece, and it was an illuminating piece and a a nice piece of perspective. But it was perspective nevertheless. And that was one of the frustrations with conservatives uh, and and the critics, the many historians who uh, took issue with the assertions that were made in that symposium. And the bedrock assumption that the New York Times sub, uh, subscribed to, saying that it, this was an effort to recast the narrative of American history, and he used the word narrative, yeah. uh, and I, that, that word narrative is an absolute scourge on the journalistic institution. 
Um, it is not an effort to, by definition, the word alone suggests that you've abandoned the dispassionate prosecutorial effort to lay out the facts as they are known, whether or not that comports with the particular outlook, and to tell a story. And a story has good guys, and it has bad guys, and it has a plot line, and it has devices, and it has an arc, mm -hmm. and a denouement. And those are the things that storytellers use. Uh, and journalism is storytelling. But narrative doesn't come into play. Narrative is something that I do. Narrative is something <laughs> that opinion makers do, right. that we write stories, and we tell didactic tales um, and use the facts as we see them to present an argument um, and by de describing this as commentary, which is what it was, uh, the Pulitzer Prize board rewarded something to an extent, which I think is perhaps not worthy of reward, but it was a very valuable admission because the New York Times has been blurring the distinction between a prosecutorial laying out of the facts as we see them in an effort to correct a flawed historical record and storytelling. Um, and this is a, con a confession that what is now being taught in American elementary schools across the country as a statement of fact is not a statement of fact, but one woman's opinion. Uh, and that's important, a distinction that we all should internalize. And it's a distinction that they've been blurring for quite some time. And narrative journalism generally blurs. Narrative journalism is a business proposition. It is an effort to create and to enhance audience engagement, which for the business of, of uh, media and journalism generally, which suffers dramatically amid a reshaping of the media landscape and has uh, had created a lot of financial hardships of late. Narrative journalism is a very important element of the business model. Um, but engaging with your audience and simply existing to confirm priors or to be provocative for being provocative's sake uh, is not necessarily uh, aligned with the mission statement. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, everybody's pretty loath to confront that, that um, I guess, uh, dichotomy. It's something that's uh, it's at odds with the business of journalism, but it's nevertheless one that you can't really ex address without attacking the last surviving model that journalistic institutions that aren't the New York Times, which has six million subscribers, uh, can 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 sub uh, abandon and still survive. Uh, so it's quite a conundrum, but it's nevertheless. I don't think it's done the, the business of journalism any any help. Uh, and you know the, the Pulitzer board helpful, helpfully uh, crystallized the issue, an issue that conservatives have been making a point of for some time. So in our current scenario, I mean, widely viewed in the public, at least on the left and in the center, Donald Trump is the bad guy. And in New York right now, and by the way, I'm not saying he's a good guy. Uh, in, <laughs> in New York right now, we have Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio as the people who have been you know, in front of this situation from a public policy perspective. And Cuomo has been called things like daddy and my president by, you know, prominent left-leaning media figures. And that confuses me because that is the there have been a multitude of errors in New York City in terms of the government response to coronavirus. And I was wondering if you might speak to those for a second. And then, you know, those people, Cuomo, Cuomo in particular, has been kind of lionized. And I don't understand that. Well, in terms of optics, just the performance art of it all. He's done a far better job of being a reassuring um, 
paternal figure mm-hmm. than, for example, Donald Trump um, or half a dozen other governors. And uh, for people who engage in that kind of thought and who are inclined in any way to describe a politician as a father figure, which yeah. is a little pathological in and of itself, um, he fits the bill. Yeah. And so he's, he fills a role that is essentially just being an antagonist, back to narrative journalism, an antagonist for Donald Trump, or for Donald Trump. So he is the protagonist, and Trump is the antagonist in this very simple didactic tale. Uh, and that works the journalistic model. It fits the journalistic model today. Um, it is nevertheless something that I think obscures rather than uh, clarifies for a variety of reasons. One, as you suggest, you know, the easy way to dog to to demagogue these issues today is to say, you know, you in your selfish um, ways want to, you know, uh, just open up every business and go outside and go about your ways. You're killing grandma, but nobody has anything to say about the absolute Holocaust. In nursing homes in New York, that mm-hmm. Governor Cuomo engineered, he forced these these institutions to accept COVID positive people for lack of anywhere else to go, and, and the that's result utterly has been shocking. I mean, it's and the result shocking. has been mass death yeah. on a, on a terrible scale. And if anybody was serious making that argument was serious, they would be taking Governor Cuomo to task, but they are not because they're not serious. Right. Um, another reason why these people are not serious is because they have, and this is the press too, they have exerted and reserved all energy for castigating governors uh, governors like Florida's Ron DeSantis and Texas's uh, Abbott, um, and they have reserved all judgment um, for people like Jared Polis in Colorado or even Gavin Newsom in California, um, who are taking the precise same steps mm-hmm. to open up their economies. Uh, in Jared Polis's case, with a worse um, curve, as it were, than places like Georgia, where Brian Kemp has been under siege. Um, there is a, a disparity in the way these openings are being covered that has very little to do with the objective evidence before us and probably a lot more to do with the, uh, the hue of the governor's jersey. That uh, suggests to me that this is a political operation. Again, very simple narrative storytelling. Mm-hmm. And one that already depends on us having anti-Florida bigotry. <laughs> Which is amazing. Well, yeah, probably. I mean, there's there's this other news story today that New York City was seeding uh, the entire country with whatever yes, particularly virulent strain of COVID it had been afflicted with. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's a very important part of the story, but it's also the country's most populous city. Mm-hmm. The uh, three or four uh, major transit hubs coming out of it. So, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you'd expect. So there's going to be a New York backlash. And it will be much more pronounced among conservatives for whom New York City is the antithesis of all they believe. Uh, it will be less so among among liberals. But it's nevertheless, there's an effort to create some sort of a, establish a bad guy for this tale that everyone is trying to tell. Uh, and the reality of this very complicated situation is it confounds your effort to establish a narrative, which makes the narrative, the narrative pursuit that much more convoluted unless you're initiated in whatever club uh, is trying to tell you this weave this tale all of it sounds very discordant and, and doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, so I, i've written about this for a couple of uh, on a couple of occasions now if you're an ideologue as i am um and haven't 
confronted at least one of your priors, your cherished, deeply held beliefs sure. by this condition. I don't think you're a very serious thinker, because just about every prior that you hold as an ideologue when it comes to domestic policy should have been challenged by what we've experienced today. If you're uh, particularly invested in the idea that uh, government, for example, can ride in on a winged horse and deliver you from whatever condition that you are in, you should be pretty disappointed by the experience <laughs> of the last couple of weeks. Moreover, the states that have uh, the state and federal government that have uh, appealed to emergency orders have done so in order to loosen the hold that government has over um, regulatory structures uh, in the name of health and better business practices uh, and freed those, those, uh, those businesses under these onerous regulatory burdens from behaving in ways that allow them to confront the crisis, both economic and public health, uh, in ways that are most advantageous as quickly as possible. Um, it's, a much, it's a very libertarian approach to a crisis, and it has been working uh, profoundly well. The places that declined, that held to their these um, procedural bureaucratic frameworks did so to the detriment of public health like the FDA and the CDC mm -hmm. um, which spent the first couple of months of this thing clinging to uh, clinical practices best practices that resulted in an absolute failure of the testing regime which we are still suffering from today the inability of the federal government to get out of its own way and allow uh, research hospitals universities and private labs to do the kind of work that they do early on contributed to the to the depth and the prolonging of this crisis and i could go on and on the examples are myriad i've wrote about them for commentary magazine but just as conservatives have had to confront the fact that a robust government response is necessary here, the hemorrhaging of money to the detriment of future generations, which will have to uh, suffer a truncated idea of what America's extroverted power looks like and what America's capacity for to generate wealth looks like, have had to suffer, um, have had to endure uh, a situation that they think is perhaps pretty intolerable, um, but nevertheless, at the due to the defer, deferring to the urgency of the crisis, um, and I hope that uh, ideological liberals would do the same. We shall see. Um, so I want to ask you about this. Like, where where do you where do you place the the quote unquote experts in this whole picture? Because from you know, from my perspective, what I see is that we have experts who say different things. There's not one universal, pure expert opinion. And then we get battered with the phrase, listen to the experts, listen to the experts. I'm confused by what that could possibly mean, considering that the experts we're supposed to listen to now were saying something entirely different three months ago, and <laughs> they very likely were advising Trump based on the same things that they were telling us, advising the governors based on the same things that they were telling us. I mean, experts are the ones who have constructed this situation around us. I mean, obviously, they're not responsible for the disease, although I suppose you could even argue that. But I don't understand why we have gotten to a point where we feel inclined to delegate our moral and intellectual thinking to someone else like that. We can just write off our responsibility by saying the experts said this. Right. Well, among my, one of my biggest frustrations is, and Gavin Newsom has done this and my governor in New Jersey, Phil Murphy has done this is to justify policy, um, in this, uh, in this pandemic 
like closing schools for what have you for an indefinite period um, by citing the science. Sure. The science tells us to do this. Um, if you're actually a consumer of the science, as you would be of any expert field, you would know that there is no consensus right. around what their pro- what their uh, prescription is at this particular given moment, that um, there is a lot of discussion and debate uh, within particular expert fields around this sort of thing. Uh, the notion, for example, and I've seen this bandied about by people who, who's, who seem to suffice as the digesters of expertise to regurgitate it for all of us, um, <laughs> thank, you know, God bless them, um, yes. is, is uh, that you know, the, the, there's, mo- there's sort of a moral authority in medicine. Uh-huh. And so medicine is of a particular mind, a hive mind, on one issue or the other. If you know anyone in medicine, you know that there is no consensus, uh, particularly regarding morality uh, in the fields of medicine, let alone any other natural science. Um, there's discussion and debate along these lines, profoundly caustic debate at times, uh, around all of this at all times, about all issues, as any expert field should have, um, which is not to say there is not a settled opinion um, but settled opinion is constantly subject to challenge, um, which makes which is what keeps it settled. Um, you know, so this is kind of anathema to people for whom expertise suffices as a form of uh, theology, as, the, as it. it, it it, it serves a, it serves again a narrative purpose because it is a device that is designed to uh, not silence debate necessarily, but to uh, suggest that those who engage in debate are in, Ill, in, uninformed. Right, and then, um, and then the, the the problem for me then is that if you are saying that the science is on your side, I feel like that's almost like saying God is on your side in a war. And it's like, yeah, both sides think that, you know? So what you're doing then is is cherry picking the science and the expertise that leads you to the decision you already want to be making. Absolutely. So I'll take one example from foreign policy, which is my academic background. So when this whole thing really began to hit the West hard uh, in mid to late March, the foreign policy consensus, the gray beards at the Council on Foreign Relations and various other think tanks who the media orbits around, um, were of a particular mind that China would be the big winner of this thing, that its uh, economic rise would generally be uninterrupted by this, that its uh, sphere of nations in its orbit would be more reliant on Chinese technology and soft power and even and hard power in the years to come. Um, and that struck me as profoundly short-sighted, uh, in part because it was easy to imagine, in my view, the ways in which you could see a backlash, a particular backlash, developing among the nations that had been the hardest hit by this. The evidence for me at the time um, wasn't particularly strong, but it was nevertheless there. The uh, reason why Italy and Iran, for example, got hit so hard so early was a result of their interconnected links to Beijing through trade. In Iran, the city of Qum in particular, where it got really badly hit, is where um, they circumvent Western sanctions uh, and have a lot of construction projects with uh, Beijing. Uh, Beijing is a lifeline for Iran economically. Likewise, Italy was the first of the G7 nations to sign up for the Belt and Road Initiative to the consternation of uh, quite a bit of the Western alliance. And one of the reasons why they got hit so hard is because there are so many construction projects in the north of that country that are linked to the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, Chinese diplomacy requires you to adopt 
uh, if you were to take Chinese money, you have to adopt the Chinese line on quite a few diplomatic initiatives. And that's a source of great frustration for these, uh, for both these governments and the individuals who are free, who are, who talk about this quite often. Mm -hmm. Um, it's disregarded, uh, by foreign policy experts because it is, uh, perhaps a little granular. It's not 30,000 foot big picture. But in the interim, you've seen China apply this to its, uh, diplomacy initiatives around personal protective equipment, much of which has turned out to be pretty faulty and bad, is that you had to adopt particular Chinese, uh, you had to, first of all, thank them very publicly. Obsequiously for their for their generosity, even though they were giving you stuff that didn't work, uh, and one of the you know things that has happened in the interim is uh, Britain um, decided to abandon uh, its contract with uh, Huawei, which is this 5G promoter, um, which the United States has said, you know, is going to be a real problem for us in the Five Eyes uh, intelligence sharing agreement because this is a this is a porous company that more likely than not is a Trojan horse for Chinese intelligence. And China lost its inroad to London as a result of this crisis. It always struck me that it didn't make a lot of sense for China to be the chief beneficiary of a crisis it imposed on the world because of its insularity and, and paranoia. Uh, and it seems to be bearing out now that uh, this, you know, this is not going to be the China century that we thought it was going to be. What do you think the future is with between us and China as far as trade goes? Do you see a threat of escalation here? Yes. That's just, those are two separate questions, I guess. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, there will be, there will most certainly be a, a more conflictual relationship moving forward. Uh, I don't know who's going to manage it, whether Donald Trump is the uh, executor of that relationship or Joe Biden. Uh, it will be a much more confrontational one. Um, and uh, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised to see the kind of repatriation. This is a blind spot for me because I'm much more of a classical liberal when it comes to trade. I find mm -hmm. this to be a particularly valuable weapon in the quiver of the classical uh, liberal because um, the promotion of uh, trade uh, comes the promotion of values and the development of a stable middle class is one that any regime quickly comes to depend on for stability and uh, legitimacy. And that alone creates the conditions where you have a, a responsible citizenry and a responsible citizenry leads to a responsible government. Uh, so to see that truncated is something that I mourn. Nevertheless, um, the repatriation of a lot of national security technology that we manufacture over there is something that I think has been an important project for a long time. I did not foresee pharmaceuticals and personal protective equipment as part of that national security strategy. It is now. Uh -huh. But there's a reciprocal relationship there, for example. It's not 100 percent, you know, one way. China depends on us for the export of just about most medical technology and almost all cancer therapies. Uh, so if it were to become something where it was a, a real back and forth, where we really were shutting down the lines of, uh, of trade, it's not just uh, manufactured goods. It would be um, not an intellectual property, but it would be also um, really important and pricey medical therapies like that. And that could have a really deleterious effect on Chinese society, too. So it's not a, it's not as though um, we're looking down the, the barrel of a future in which everything gets a little bit more expensive here uh, and China suffers very little uh, in that relationship we have uh, we have some some ammunition that we can hold uh, over their heads as well hopefully hopefully we don't get to the point where we have to use it uh, but it is nevertheless 
the way in which we have to think about our relationship with with China is one that is going to have to change in the future. Uh, briefly, I don't want to digress too much, but I've always thought about the relationship with China as uh, the conflict with China as being something in the in the longer term. In part because, as a rising power, Beijing is aware that time is on its side. It has been, therefore, pretty risk averse. It doesn't really manufacture international crises like Russia does. Like Russia intervenes in Syria to protect its ports in the Mediterranean、sure. and invades and annexes territory in Europe. That's the kind of risky behavior that a power that is in decline and knows it is in decline engages in because the window of action is closing. China has a different outlook on things. But it was its paranoia and its insularity and its risk aversion that led it to falsify data, to silence whistleblowers, to mislead the WHO, which led every Western country into a false sense of, of complacency with this virus.、Um, it was its very paranoia and insularity that has led it to be risk averse that created this global crisis of an unprecedented scale,、uh, which has changed my calculation quite a bit. That that insularity is no longer a source of stability, but also a threat as well.、So Let's move the clock up quite a bit. Do you see this moving at all、uh, militarily, or is that just completely out of out of no, mind? No, no. There will be a military dimension to this as well.、Okay. There already is.、Um, the South the China Sea States, right now. Correct. The United States engages in.、Um, <laughs> Uh, displays of threat mitigating deterrent force in the South China Sea, just as China has engaged in、uh, very aggressive displays and sometimes aggressive action against powers like、uh, Vietnam and the Philippines. So we're.、Uh, and, oh, go ahead. So that's a flashpoint, and you could certainly see more、uh, confrontation.、Uh, outright shooting conflict is unlikely because it's undesirable for all parties. That doesn't mean you can't stumble into it, but、sure. it's certainly not something that's on the grand strategic vision of either country right now. But、uh, there will be a military dimension to this conflict, most assuredly. I'm.、Uh, I guess we're running up against the clock right now, so I want to ask you one little、uh, political thing before we go here.、Um, I've basically been viewing this whole thing and the press coverage around it、uh, with the understanding that all the parties realize that the outcome of this situation is most likely going to decide. The election in the fall, and so it's being covered as a political race.、Um, you know, we we could the coverage is almost identical to what we would see with、uh, Access Hollywood tape, for instance.、Um, so that in mind, I mean, there's obviously too many unknowns. But do you have any ideas on how you see the election playing out? Since we're what six months away? No. <laughs> okay, perfect. Let's leave it yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, uh, for, uh, just, yeah, just to elaborate briefly, it's, it's really hard to forecast two weeks into the future,、sure. much less six months. I don't know how anybody has the confidence or self-assuredness to do that.、Um, but that being said, you know, we're going to look at the the worst economic downturn in a hundred years in the second quarter, and if we emerge from that within、uh, in enough time to to feel it. To begin to feel the recovery、uh, by November sixth, then it's a different game.、Um, if we don't, then Donald Trump is toast, and probably the Senate Republican majority is toast. Yeah. All right, Noah. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. I really do appreciate it.、Uh, it's been a pleasure to、uh, listen to you over these weeks on the commentary podcast. So I hope we get to do it again sometime. It's kind of you to say. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Take care. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator.
If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, search Be Reasonable on Patreon, where I'll have additional daily-ish segments in a special podcast feed of the show, as well as my writing and audio readings of those articles. You can also go to anchor.fm slash be reasonable and become a supporter there. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Be reasonable. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. At least.